about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Thomas. Uh, today we'll be reading from Ecclesiastes 9, um, verses 1 to 12. Excellent. Uh, so I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, and those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The heart of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts whilst they live, and after they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For the Lord has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life, and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, Do it with all your might, for in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Hi there, my name's Amelia. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 26. So that's 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 26. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. 
for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Good evening, friends. Great to be with you. My name's Matt, one of the pastors here. Welcome to you if you're new or visiting, or if you're new or visiting on live stream, great to have you with us. We're continuing our walk through the book of Ecclesiastes. We have two more weeks after this week to kind of finish things off. And we've been thinking about uh, what a meaningful life might look like, especially in a strange year like this. And we've walked through various parts of life and seen whether or not they can supply meaning and significance to humanity. Riches and wisdom and pleasure and projects and the seasons of life. All of these we've looked at and seen that how they are don't supply a meaning and significance or a way to live a fulfilling life. And when we reach chapter 9, we reach a crescendo of a theme that's twisted its way through the whole of Ecclesiastes. The reality that life is robbed of its meaning ultimately by death. That death is coming for us all, and it makes all of our projects pointless. Death robs life of meaning. Or does it? Because one of the things we see all around us in our world right now is a whole mantra and philosophy about how the, the brevity of life and the reality of death actually give a meaning and significance to life. As if the reality that you will one day die supplies you with an anxiety and an energy with which to do life well. Death actually gives life meaning in a whole, for a whole bunch of people. One example of that would be Justin Vernon, the lead singer of Bon Iver. If you haven't listened to Bon Iver, you should. I listened to this album on repeat through more college in like studying, basically. It's fantastic. Now, Bon Iver was just uh, in rural Wisconsin doing indie folk music and never expected to become as famous or as huge as he did. And, and in fact, after his second album, he was so famous that he, he basically went rogue and out of the spotlight and went through Europe and just kind of disappeared off the radar and almost was never going to come back, never come back to, create, to creative arts or anything like that. He was so over what had happened and so overwhelmed by what his life had become. But as he was touring around Rogue uh, in Greece, he had with him his sampler where he'd just speak in phrases as they came to him just to keep them in case he did want to write again. And he found himself again and again and again saying into the sampler, it might be over soon. It might be over soon. It might be over soon. And he credits this moment and this phrase kind of ringing through his soul like a mantra, he calls it in the New York Times, uh, as something that kind of reawakened him back up to his creative task. The bad stuff might be over soon, but maybe the good stuff might be over soon. So you'd better figure out how to enjoy this life and participate in it. I see this all around us these days. People saying that the, the reality of our mortality and our death dr should drive us to live a meaningful life. Martin Huglin from uh, Harvard argues this, that mortality makes us spiritually free creatures. You won't live as fulfilled a life until you get that you will die and death drives us to a meaningful existence. Or perhaps just YOLO. You know, as trivial as it is, the reality that you only have one life, so why not do that thing? All around us, we are soaked in the idea that death should drive the meaning of our life. But as we listen to the teacher today, he's going to say the exact opposite. That death doesn't supply us with energy for a meaningful life. That death robs life of meaning. That it is, in fact, a tragic enemy of life. 
So let's, let's walk through this. This is a dark chapter, okay, friends? It's a dark chapter. Uh, but it's important for us to walk through so we find our hope honestly. So four things about this. First one is this. What does he say? He says death will overtake us and everything we are. Death will overtake us and everything we are. Verse 2, all share, all share a common destiny. The righteous, the wicked, the good, the bad, the good, the sinful, those who take oaths, those who don't want to take oaths. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people are full of madness and afterward they join the dead. It's a quite an up description of life for a spring night, don't you think? Our hearts are full of madness and evil, and then we die. And it doesn't matter how good you were. It doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa or you're Hitler. You end up in the grave. You end up in the same fate, the same destiny. No matter how religious you were, no matter how much good you did in this world, no matter what you worked for, no matter what your values were, no matter how significant you thought you were, you all get the same thing you are all, we are all in the ground at the end of the day. But you might be saying, well, that, that's what drives the significance of life, this reality that we will end up in death. So Martin Huglin will say, you know, to acknowledge that everything will be lost and yet, you, yet to be resolved to make the most of the time that is given, to see that death is utter darkness and yet you seek to maintain the light that will be extinguished, raging in the light of the darkness to come. Isn't there a meaning and a significance in a life lived in that fashion? Doesn't death supply life with meaning? Well, no, he goes on. The dead know nothing. They have no further reward. Their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Which is to say, if you believe our modern story that we're from nothing, just evolved up from the dust, from nothing, and we are headed to nothing, then love and hate, be jealous, be angry, be good, be bad, be evil, be incredible. But you're still nothing. Your name won't be remembered. Your deeds won't last. You will be erased from the earth. Death will take you and everything you have. Here is the honest truth that we as a culture love to keep very hidden in our lovely little YOLO hashtag. That one day we will lose everything. I think it actually puts a pretty dark twist on this whole project of living a meaningful life in light of our death. Michael B. Jordan in Creed, I think, uh, helps me with this a little bit. I see this in modern culture a lot. Uh, of, of how to live a meaningful existence. Creed is uh, just a Rocky remake with Michael B. Jordan because he's great, so why not? And all the way through the film, there's this rich boy who's, who's grown up, uh, the, the, the son of uh, a famous boxer, and, and he ends up boxing even though he has everything, and he's driven the whole movie, and you're not sure why. You get to the end of the film and the great fight scene, and then, you know it's going really well, and then really bad, and then really well, and really bad, and he's about to give up. And Rocky's there coaching him, and he, and he has him in the corner, and he, he, he kind of drives at him and tries to get him up back in the ring. And he says, why do you want to do this? What is the reason you want to get back up and fight some more? And he says, I have to prove. I have to prove what? Rocky says back. 
I have to prove that I'm not an accident. Which is basically the whole way we as modern people try to live life. Trying to live a life of such significance that we're trying to prove that we are not just cosmic accidents. That we aren't just a, a blip and a spark in the darkness. But there is a meaning and a weight to us. It's a hugely fear-driven, awful existence. And the teacher names it for what it is. But he does offer us something, doesn't he? Well, at least something-ish. He says, well, death doesn't give life meaning, but death does reveal the preciousness of bodily life. Uh, In in verses 7 to 10, you have what's called um, one of the carpe diem passages of Ecclesiastes. It's the fifth one of the book. Uh, A seize the day passage where he, after telling you how bad life is, tells you to go and eat and drink and work Anyway, and this one's really interesting for two reasons. One is that he commands you to do things, which he doesn't do in other carpe diem passages. And the second thing is that there's so many oddly specific things in this passage. Did you notice that? So it starts with the command, go and eat your food with gladness. And he talks about drinking wine. He doesn't talk about that before. Wine specifically. He says to wear white clothing and to anoint your head with oil. And I don't get what the Bible means when it talks about how happy it is to have oil on your face. But it's a thing in the Old Testament. I don't get it. Uh, you know, enjoy your marriage, enjoy your relationships, and enjoy your work. And then he's really specific about work, how it's about planning and knowledge and wisdom and not just agrarian kind of culture. It's oddly specific. It's like he's talked about death happening, and then he goes, but it's so good to have taste buds and to drink nice wine. And it's so good, the feel of the luxurious feel of oil on your face in the morning and a crisp white shirt to go to work to plan something cool by the end of the day. And it's nice to come home and talk to someone. It's like he, in, in view of death, he, he just gets this sense that bodily life is just, it's precious and good. It's good to do all these things. It's good to experience all these sensations. It's good to have a body and be in this world. Meaningless as it is, in case you didn't see that in verse 9, all the days of this meaningless life, all your meaningless days, death doesn't give life meaning, but it doesn't mean it doesn't show how precious it is. How precious it is to wake up with a body in a good world. I think uh, verse 7 might be the key. For God has already approved what you do which is a way of kind of pointing back to Genesis 1 and to speak of the fact that God made you with taste buds and for relationship and for work and for all these things. That's a good part of the existence that you've been given. But it's so contradictory, don't you think, in, in, in the midst of this chapter, which is so full of the darkness of life. And I think he's wrestling with this because he doesn't really know the Christian doctrine of resurrection. Because what happens? Jesus dies and then he raises back to life. And what does he go do? He goes eat and eats fish with friends in John 21. Using his taste buds and his relationships. And in, he's back in God's good world. Resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is God's great approval to having a body and being in the world as a good thing that he has made. And the resurrection from the dead, which is the Christian hope, 
Christian hope isn't that we will just end off in the sky as spirits, but that we will end up back in the world, enjoying the good things that God has made. See, resurrection is what the teacher longs for in every carpe diem passage. The ability to wake up bodily in God's world and to keep doing all the good things that he has given. We are not to take our bodily life for granted. It is a precious gift. Enjoy your body. Enjoy being in God's world. You'll be doing it forever if your faith is in Jesus. But the preciousness of life in this passage in particular is kind of then pulled out from under you. Because in the last two verses of the chapter, he talks about how basically death also reveals how little control you have over that precious life you have. Because what is he going to say? I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. Food doesn't come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. Which is a way of saying you might go at something with the precious days of your life That does not mean you will get it. You might come at life thinking you're going to make something really significant of yourself, but the reality is of the real world that the smartest people don't always find the most incredible things, nor do the right people win the right prizes, nor does anything really work the way you might expect it to. Instead, time and chance happens to all because you can't control what's going to happen in your life. And moreover, verse 12, no one knows when their hour will come. No one knows when their precious life will end. And then he doubles down on that thought and does, gives you some imagery to help you understand. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Here's what happens in life. Just as fish, as they're living their normal lives, are suddenly plucked out of the water by a net. Or birds flying through the sky are snared and snatched out. So one day, we will be snatched from the sky, or out of the water, and it will end. Violently and cruelly, according to the teacher. Death reveals how little control we have over life. We like to tell ourselves that death is just natural. It's just a part of the process, this kind of Lion King vision of death, circle of life kind of stuff. But there's a lot of death that's not circle of life, natural feeling. When was the first time you experienced death as described here as the cruel snatching of life? My first time was in year 12, three weeks out from our trial exams, when there were two people in my year sitting on the back of a ute, and the ute was moved two meters up the road and hit a rock. Both guys got knocked off. One rolled and was fine. The other hit his head and died. There's nothing natural about that. That's cruel. It robbed opportunity, it robbed life, it robbed relationship. It wasn't a natural thing. It, was a, it felt like an evil. It still feels like an evil. And so there's so much death that happens in our world is exactly as the teacher describes it. And I think he gets death right at this point. Death is not 
the thing that gives life meaning. It is not the friend of life. Death is the enemy of life. It robs it of its meaning, its essence, its beauty, its preciousness, and its significance. And so it's no wonder when we open 1 Corinthians 15 and we hear about the Lord Jesus who was raised from the dead, completing the purposes of God his Father, what does he have to do to get the job done? What is his final enemy? His final enemy is death. Before he hands the kingdom back to God his Father, to the greater son of David, who did not just see death as an enemy beyond control, but as an enemy to be conquered in his own resurrection life. In Jesus Christ, the reality that death will overtake us and will take our precious life at a moment we can't control is finally dealt with. In Jesus Christ, Death is itself conquered and will one day be finally defeated so that resurrection carpe diem life can be enjoyed. You see, death does not fill life with meaning. Jesus' resurrection does. In fact, Jesus, in his death and resurrection, gives us courage to both live and die. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, gives us a capacity to go at life with such verve and passion and courage that just the day that our days are numbered just pales in comparison. I skipped one verse in the passage, you might have noticed, verse one, because I wanted to come back to it now. Because the I think he starts with his eeriest thought at the beginning. This idea that the the righteous and the wicked end up dying and in God's hands, but you don't know whether love or hate will meet them. Which is just that classic feeling of having come to the end of your life wondering whether you've done enough, whether you're good enough, whether you're evil enough, whether you're, you know, what will happen? Will you face love or hate? You know, when I heard about my friend who died was from my other friend Dave, and he called me on the phone, explained to me what happened, and his first question was, where has Dave gone? Because how do you know? And the teacher's like, well, who knows? Love or hate? By the death and resurrection of Jesus, what do we know? In the death of Jesus, what happened? He received our hate that we might receive God's love. Jesus died under God's wrath for what? The madness and evil in our hearts that we might receive his resurrection life. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we can face death courageously knowing that we will meet his love instead of his hate and that we will not remain in the grave but we will be raised up again. We have the courage to face death honestly, to look at our hands and say, these will not last. And that's okay. It's okay for me to die. It's okay for me to be put in the ground. It's okay for my energy to end. It's okay for my projects to go unfinished. It's okay for me to have failed. It's okay for me to have sinned. Because by the death and resurrection of Jesus, love and life await me. Rather than judgment and death. 
But that same death and resurrection of Jesus also gives us a courage to live now. And I think we forget this. That that doesn't just mean that this life is now null and void. If you look at Paul in 2 Corinthians, what does he say? Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and for them was raised again. You see, YOLO says, you know, you've only got one life, so maximize your own pleasure and your own achievements. But the death and resurrection of Jesus says, your one life has been purchased and it no longer belongs to you. It's no longer for you. It is now for him. It belongs to him. It is about him. It is destined to be raised by him. You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. And so a meaningful life is not found in fulfilling all the pleasures and desires I have until I die, but in fulfilling the pleasures and desires of the Lord Christ. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus, this this. This end of the story known means that I can have a free hit at the days I have left. What do I have to lose? What, what happens if I lose my money? What happens if I lose and fail at some projects that I try? What have I lost? Can I not courageously attempt the things of life for Jesus, knowing that love and life await me anyway? Well, we're talking about this this morning, and I realized that wasn't concrete enough, so let me talk to you about it. Because I think the death and resurrection of Jesus should help you re-narrate even the simplest things of your life. Now, our culture is used to, to relaying to us that you know, the, the, the reason why you should know you should get on the airplane and do that trip, the reason why you know you should um, you know, go do that thing with that person is because you only live once. It tells you a story that makes it make sense. But we're to do the same thing with the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, I don't have friends. I have people who the Lord Jesus has put in my life to love and serve until he comes again. I haven't been given money for my own sake. I've been given money for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of his death and resurrection. You know what? I could do this, but because Jesus died and rose again, it's better that I do this and lose that rather than not serve him. Because as 1 Corinthians 15 says, Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. A life lived in his service is no longer meaningless. It is shot through with glory because you belong to the one who has conquered death, to the one who is over all. And so in every mundane task of the day, to every huge decision in life, you can live with courage instead of fear. You can live with passion for him rather than passion for you. Knowing that love and life await you by his death and resurrection. See, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that fills our life with meaning, with hope, with strength, with passion and power in a way that nothing else can. We don't need to fill up our minds and our hearts with our own coming hour of death, but with his death that's already passed, that paid for our sin, that took our hate, that we might have life and love. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that your word this evening would strip us back, that those, the, the, dishonesty in our hearts that's been hiding our mortality from us. 
This, the dishonesty in our hearts that has swallowed the story our culture has told us about this one life that's to be lived for us. Father, we stand confident today that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is a way to enjoy the goodness of this world again. And a way to free this life for a courageous, passion-filled existence for him. We pray, lead us out of our fear. Lead us out of our denial. Into a place of courage and faith and hope. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.